Our um, topic today is from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. It's only three verses, but this is a very uh, rich passage, so uh, you, know, you should not think that you're going to get away that quickly. So uh, it talks about true confidence, and I want to draw your attention uh, to this beautiful passage today, especially as we come into the new year and we are all busy making decisions and, and thinking about what we have to do. I think the Word of God has much to talk about when it comes to the issue of where we put our trust, where we put our confidence in. So if you can uh, rise as we read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Father God, we want to thank you a lot for your word uh, that you have entrusted to us a lot and for the beautiful riches that it contains, Lord. And as we spend some time today in front of it, we pray that your spirit will, uh, will open our minds and our hearts a lot to understand what you have to say to us today. And we pray, uh, oh Lord, that this word will be applicable in our lives a lot and that it will impact us a lot as we consider our lives and our relationships with you. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So confidence, the... Oxford Dictionary defines confidence as the feeling or belief that one can have faith in or rely on someone or something. The feeling or belief that one can have faith in or rely on someone or something. Now, that description is true, but when we talk about confidence, it, that definition misses a key aspect, uh, an aspect which actually is captured better by Wikipedia of all places. Uh, Wikipedia says, confidence is generally described as a state of being certain either that a belief is correct or that a chosen course of action is the best or most effective. So either that the belief is correct and or that a chosen course of action is the best or most effective. You see, confidence is more than just belief or faith. Confidence actually drives the way we make our decisions. It underlies the courage and the conviction that we need to put those decisions into action. When we describe someone as confident, we are not focusing on that person's beliefs. So that plays a part in it. Rather, we are focusing on how that person behaves and acts and carries himself or herself, particularly when it comes to intense, stressful situations. Now, that type of confidence is usually what we call self-confidence. And self-confidence is very important in life. There are many research studies, if you uh, have the time, you can Google it, many research studies done by uh, academics and professors which show that self-confidence is tied to higher salaries and successful careers. So that means people who are more self-confident generally tend to make more money. Now, psychologists today... You know, when they deal with their patients, they mostly focus on generating what they call self-esteem within their patients as the means to counter uh, whatever situation that the patient is going through. So there's something called 
the wheel of wellness. Now, this is a wheel which has like 12 spokes, uh, actually five spokes, and one of, the, one of the spokes in this wheel is called self-direction, which is also called, you could say, self-confidence, and it has things like sense of word, sense of control over situations, and so on. So self-confidence is very important. But we know in life, ultimately not everything is within our control. So a lot of our decisions and actions are influenced by our confidence in others, be that people like our family and friends and colleagues at work or politicians or even institutions like the healthcare system or the Bank of Canada uh, and the government and even in like things like you know, the value of currency, the Canadian dollar, the value of real estate. Um, let's take the decision-making process involved in buying a house as an example. Here are some of the things that I came up with. You need to have confidence that real estate values are not overpriced, which means that it will not crash immediately after you buy a house. That your real estate agent is looking out for your best interest. That the Bank of Canada will not raise interest rates while you are out shopping. That the municipality you're looking in is financially sound and will not raise taxes. That the the local hospitals are better or comparable to the ones that you currently have and so forth. See, not every decision in life has so many points of data, but you get the idea. Consciously or unconsciously, what we do and what we are is driven by our confidence in ourselves and in others. Today I'm going to put forward three criteria for evaluating whether someone is worthy of having you place their confidence in them. Now, I believe these conditions are kind of self-evident. But if they do not seem very evident to you, I hope you'll humor me and give me the opportunity to explain. So here are the three conditions for evaluating whether someone is worthy of having confidence placed in them. First one, who are they? The second one, what have they done to justify your faith in them? And number three, how can you benefit from placing your confidence in them. The first idea, who are they, is easy to understand. Who is the person you have chosen to place your confidence in? What is their nature? Do they have the authority and the status necessary to meet your specific need? You know, for example, the teller at a bank might be your friend, and he or she might have the desire to give you a mortgage. But only the manager can actually commit to doing so. So who are they? Secondly, what have they done in the past that makes them qualified to deserve your trust? This is why we are going into an election year in 2015. This is why politicians standing for office make a point of highlighting their track record in their previous uh, roles or in their previous time in office because they want to show you that they have a precedent of being trustworthy in the past. Therefore, you should continue to trust them in the present and future. So what have they done? And finally, we come to the selfish reason. What do I gain in return for placing my confidence in you? How can I take advantage of your authority and your track record? Now, many of us know the right people. But when push comes to shove, there are very few who can help us get what we want. Now, if any of you are on LinkedIn, you know what I'm talking about. LinkedIn is a professional social network where you try and 
you know, add people to your network, especially people who are well-placed you know, in, in companies that you would like to work for. And you might have like 200 or 300 LinkedIn contacts. But when you lose a job, how many of them do you think will turn out and be able to guarantee that, yes, you will get an opportunity in my company? So many of us know the right people, but when the situation arises, there are very few who can help us get what we want. So unless a person or institution can fulfill all three of these conditions, our confidence in them is insecure. And one of the great questions of life is, where do we find true confidence? That trust, which will always be vindicated, which will always be guaranteed no matter what happens in life. You do not have to live long to realize that almost all sources of confidence will eventually fail us. Be that confidence in our own abilities, our families, our relationships, the economy, our jobs, especially our politicians. Thus, it is imperative that we try to search for a confidence giver who will never fail us, who will never let go of us, and who will always come through for us, even in the darkest of situations. In the epistle to the Hebrews, the author is writing to assure his audience that they are, as Christians, secure in Jesus Christ, and that they need to persevere in their commitment to him. But that commitment for those believers in that time, was very costly. They were facing threats and persecution from all sides. And the easy way out was for them to abandon the Christian faith and return back to their old religion or their old ways of living. But as we have seen previously in the first three chapters, the author wants them that by abandoning their Christian confession, they are not just leaving a religion. But in fact, they are going against the very word of God that has been revealed to them in the last days through the Son, Jesus Christ. So there's a lot of warning passages in Hebrews. But the author is not all you know, fire and brimstone. He alternates his warnings with exhortations that point out that this Son of God, Jesus Christ, He's a merciful and faithful high priest who sympathizes with us in our sufferings, who provides us the divine strength needed to endure persecution, and who offers us the hope of an eternal rest once our journey in this world is complete. In our passage for today, the author, wish, the author wishes to encourage his listeners in their present situation. You see, their confidence in their families had been shaken those same families had now abandoned them. Their confidence in their nationality and their ethnicity had been shaken. Their fellow countrymen now called them traitors. Their confidence in the rule of law, in the ruling authorities had been shaken. The law could not protect them from unfair persecution, probably even to the point of death. But as the author, the author points out, they still had one source of confidence that cannot be shaken. The true confidence that comes from faith in Jesus Christ, which is sufficient for this life and the next. So the, uh, the, 
the writer asks his audience the same question we need to ask ourselves today. Where does our true confidence lie? So we read in verse 14, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So who is this person? Who is this Jesus? He says, He's the very Son of God. This is a theme that we have seen developed in chapters 1 and 2. As a Son of God, He is superior to all creation. He's exalted far above the angels in the heavenly realms. He is the true radiance of God's glory and He's sovereign. He rules over the universe. See, the majesty of the Son of God demands an appropriate response from those who hear His word. Neglecting to obey that word has severe consequences. And we have already seen this. But... To stress solely on the divine nature of the Son misses an essential aspect of his person. In fact, the very foundation of the Christian hope. This Son of God took on flesh and he added to himself human nature. In him, the divine and the human are inseparably united. He is both fully God and fully man. And in his humanity, Jesus performs a great ministry on our behalf. And that is the ministry of our high priest. The priesthood of Jesus, from this point on, becomes the predominant theme in the epistle, of the epistle to the Hebrews. Now let us cast our mind back to what the priest did in the Old Testament. We know there are three offices, the prophet, the king, and the priest. The prophet and the king, what did they do? They represented God to the people. They brought God's word to the nation. Their ministry was primarily one of exhortation and warning and judgment. But the priest, on the other hand, he represented the people to God. So in their ministries, The prophet and the king faced the people. But when you look at the priest, the priest always ministers with his back to the people because he's facing God on behalf of the people. He identifies with the weakness and failure of the people and intercedes on their behalf to God, seeking his mercy and his forgiveness for their sins. In the priesthood, the most important person was the high priest. And we know that the high priests were only chosen from the sons of Aaron. And only they were permitted to enter into the presence of God. Now, where was the presence of God? Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies, which is where the presence of God would come. The Holy of Holies was in the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was in the sanctuary. But the Holy of Holies was so pure that it was separated from the tabernacle by a curtain. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, he would penetrate the barrier, the curtain. He would pass through the curtain that separated the awesome presence of God from the common, fallen realm of humanity. He would sprinkle the innocent blood of a sacrificial animal on the mercy seat 
within the Holy of Holies to make atonement for his sins and those of his people. Thus, he would intercede for the people, staying God's judgment on them and inviting his grace and mercy to fall on them instead. But as soon as it began, it was over. He did his work and he came back out immediately. Now the writer to the Hebrews says, Jesus is not just a high priest. He is the great high priest. He belongs to an entirely different priesthood from that of Aaron's line. He lived a perfect human life and therefore he had, the, he had no need to make atonement for his own sins. And in place of a sacrificial offering, he offered himself up on the cross of Calvary. He shed his innocent blood to make atonement for us. His perfect blood is so superior to that of bulls and goats that his one offering is enough to atone for all the sins of his people, past, present, and future. Therefore, there remains no further need for sacrifices or offerings. Where the chief priest in the Old Testament could only enter once a year into the presence of God, Jesus, after making purification for our sins, has now been exalted to the right hand of God himself. He passed not through the barrier of cloth, but he penetrated the barrier that separates the realm of God from the realm of man. He passed through the heavens to the very throne of God the Father himself. He does not need to remove himself from God's presence after a few seconds, like Aaron had to do. But that place is his by right for all eternity. Thus, in his status and in his access to God, he is infinitely superior to the Aaronic priesthood. Therefore, he is the great high priest. But you know what the beautiful thing is? That this, it is that this great high priest is our high priest. He intercedes permanently on our behalf with God. He is our perfect representative. Now the writer asks his audience, his audience in verse 14, what is his high priestly ministry worth to you? Are you willing to give up your faith in the Son of God just to avoid the harassment and pressure of the world? No, the writer says. He says, let us hold fast our confession. What is the confession? That Jesus is the Christ, our Messiah, the Son of God who took on flesh and bore our sins, dying on the tree of Calvary, and who rose up and is now exalted at the right hand of God. His authority and his status demands our complete confidence. So who is this person? Now let's come to the what, or what did he do? Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the writer is anticipating a question from his audience. That's all well and good, but you said... Jesus has now gone up to heaven and he is now transcendent. You know what that means? Transcendent means he's, he's above all 
material, creational aspects of this universe. Does that mean now that his humanity has been superseded by his divinity? Or as a commentator says, can the objection be raised that his exalted status as high priest in heaven implies that he is aloof from the tiredness and the weariness and the discouragement that the church, the people of God, faces in a hostile world. Now this is what many Christian communities will teach, that you need another intermediary because Jesus is no longer here. So the question remains, is he still willing to be considerate of us while we remain in our flesh with all of its weaknesses? And again, the, the, the writer says, not so. And I want you to notice this. To really drive the point home, he uses what we call a double negative. Now, whenever in literature or grammar you see a double negative, it conveys emphasis. The writer wants to emphasize this point. He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. The word sympathize, especially in the English language, often just means the sharing of feelings. You know, for example, I sympathize with you on your loss of a dear one. I'm just, this is hypothetical. But when I say that, that is the extent of my shared affinity with you in that situation, my sharing of feelings. But here, the, the concept of sympathy is more than just the sharing of feelings. It includes the ability to actively and effectively help you in that situation. So, in this verse, the concept of sympathy is more than just the sharing of feelings, but it includes the provision of active and effective help needed for that situation. And this is not the only verse where the writer stresses this ability of Jesus to help. Let me um, take you through a quick survey. In chapter 2 and verse 18, you don't have to turn to this, He says, Jesus is able to help those who are being tempted. In chapter 2 of verse 5, he's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and wayward. In chapter 7 and verse 25, it says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And in chapter 10, the writer says, unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, which needed to be offered again and again and again, Jesus' sacrifice is able to perfectly cleanse the conscience of his people once and for all. More than any other human priest, our great high priest has an unequaled capacity to sympathize and empathize and help us in our weaknesses, especially the kind of weaknesses that can lead to sin. Those weaknesses are the focus of our writer in this passage. And why is that? Because he knows the circumstance of his audience who is facing the temptation to throw away 
their confession and return back to their old religion. So he's saying he has an equal capacity to sympathize with you in your current situation. And what has Jesus done to deserve the stamp of confidence? And the answer is in the second part of this verse. It says, he has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That phrase conveys two related yet different ideas. Okay, two ideas. They're, very, they're related to each other, but they're different. Firstly, it says that Jesus participated fully in the human condition. That means in his incarnation, which we celebrate at Christmas, he did not just resemble humanity. He did not just have the appearance of humanity, but he fully took on the human nature. He was not immune to the frailty of the human body, be that hunger or thirst or tiredness. He did not lead the charmed life of a king aloof in his palace or the sanctified life of a priest who is separate from the uncleanliness of this world. No, this Jesus, the Son of God, he stepped down from his eternal throne in heaven to become one of us, identifying with each one of us through the core of our shared human experience. That is why we have already read in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. It says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He participated fully in humanity. Charles Spurgeon has described um, the glorious paradox of Christ's incarnation like this. The difference between the richest and the poorest man is nothing compared with the difference between Christ in the glory of his Godhead and Christ in his humiliation. The stoop or the, the descend was altogether immeasurable. You cannot describe his riches and you cannot describe his poverty. You have never had any idea of how high he was as God, and you can never imagine how low he stooped when he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, this is the glorious truth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that God is not an abstract idea anymore, but indeed he is one of us, God with us. Emmanuel. And even today, a man sits exalted at the right hand of God, the very Son of God. He has not cast aside his humanity. He knows what it's like to be you and me. The British theologian uh, B.F. Westcott observed that the sympathy of Christ as the exalted priest, exalted high priest, is not simply the compassion of one who regards suffering from outside, but the feeling of one who enters into the suffering and makes it his own. And just as he identifies fully with us, the invitation is open for us to identify fully with him. This man, our Savior, Jesus, you see what the writer has done here, he's not used the divine title Christ. 
He says, this man, Jesus, he is your savior. And yet Jesus is like us and unlike us in one very important matter. In the course of his life on earth, though he underwent intense testing, he never sinned. Now that is a unique aspect of his humanity. It marks him out as completely different from every other man that has ever lived, including the high priests who were before him. We all have moral weakness, but he did not. In the course of our struggle on this earth, our tests and our temptations will often result in sin. But he endured everything that has thrown at him and remained sinless. The Bible makes this clear throughout the New Testament. Now there are two objections that are often raised against this idea that Jesus was sinless. First, did Jesus really undergo every type of test and temptation that you and I face? But that's not what this verse means, though that is often how it is interpreted. You know, just off the top of my head, Jesus doesn't, does not know how it feels to be fired from a job. You know, for, for all uh, intents and respects, he probably was self-employed. He does not know how, to go, how it feels to go bankrupt. But then he underwent some tests that you and I will never undertake, like being asked to turn bread into stone. Sorry, stone into bread. I think I can turn bread into stone. (laughs) Um, See, the point is, there's no temptation in life, really, other than the temptation to sin. Ultimately, the root of all temptation consists of a few basic tests, which if you fail leads to despair and selfishness and lovelessness and ultimately disobedience of God and his word. And though he was tested strenuously while he was on this earth, Jesus never doubted the goodness of God. He never thought of himself about the needs of others. He never stopped loving others sacrificially and he never stopped obeying the will of his father, even to the point of death on a cross. And though he suffered Like no other man could, he was not defeated, but he emerged victorious over the forces of evil, untainted by even a hint of sin. But if Jesus never sinned, here's a second objection, how can he truly help us? For we sin, and it is often in the midst of our sin that we need the most help. Now when we go to a trusted friend or a counselor, Maybe I'm speaking for myself. Doesn't it give you a sense of comfort when we hear from that person that he or she has also failed exactly the same way you have? Now, there's a a weird sense of community that can be formed around common failure. Now, that is very therapeutic. But if you stop and think for a bit, you will realize that this is also the reason why most Counseling and advice is so unsure and so subjective. Because if the counselor knew the answers, why did they fail in the first place? Or can they guarantee that they will not fail again? Also, when I give advice, 
isn't some of it tainted by the fact that in my very advice, there's often a hint of self-justification. Some kind of explaining away of the seriousness of the sin due to you know, your context or your age or whatever other excuse that you can find relevant. But then look to Jesus. He does not have to justify his own sins because he never sinned. His advice is perfect because he never failed. And yet, his demeanor, his manner with us is not one of superiority or apathy, but of pity and sympathy because he knows what it means to be human. The immense struggle it is to stay faithful to God amidst the temptations of an evil world. But he stayed faithful and he stayed true to the one who appointed him. That is what we read in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 2. And because he stayed faithful and he stayed true, he and he's able to identify with us completely and at the same time help us perfectly because he has the sure answers to our problems and our suffering. See, he's not just our perfect representative. He's also our perfect, wonderful counselor because of what he has done. So we covered who is this person? What has he done? The final question remains. How do we benefit from placing our confidence in this person, Jesus? How do we take advantage? And verse 16 gives us the answer. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, the answer is now that we have free access into the very presence of God. The writer says that we should have the confidence to draw near to the throne of grace, which is the throne in heaven upon which God resides and at which, at his right hand, Jesus, our high priest, ministers on our behalf. The writer says we are to draw near to God continually. That's what it means. And especially when we are in need of his mercy and grace. You know, the language used here highlights the privileges of the Christian. One of which is that we have now entered into a relationship with God. But secondly, that we also have the freedom to boldly approach God in prayer. See, the sacrifice of Christ has opened up a way of approaching God that is alien to all other religions. For all other religions, the idea of God is an entity who is detached from our world and who is indifferent to our needs. Therefore, the dealing of man with God in every religion is purely transactional. You do this, then I will do that. In contrast, the Christian comes into the presence of a personal God emboldened by the reality that we are in a relationship with him, that he loves us, and that he cares for our well-being. And even to the Jew, the throne of God is symbolized by judgment and fear. We talked about the mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat was in the tabernacle, and it is the earthly counterpart of God's heavenly throne. 
Now, who could come to the mercy seat? Just the high priest. The normal person could not even enter the tabernacle. He could only approach the outer boundary of the sanctuary in which the tabernacle resided. The ordinary priest could approach the altar, but only the chief priest could come into the Holy of Holies. That too, once a year, with fear, seeking to cover the judgment of God with the blood of the sacrifice, asking for God's mercy. And soon after he entered, this chief priest, he would have to hurry out from the awesome presence of God, waiting for the next year when his opportunity would arrive once again. That chief priest had what we now call an encounter with God. You would have seen all the books, you know, all, all, the, all the television shows about having an encounter with God. But a Christian does not have an encounter with God. A Christian has a relationship with God. So we do not approach the earthly replica of the heavenly throne. But we approach that throne itself. We enter into the heavenly presence of God. For us, that throne is not a throne of judgment and fear. But because of Christ's blood that has covered our sins once and for all, that throne is now a throne of grace. And we do not have to wait for a day in the year when we are allowed into the presence of God. We have the freedom to continually, on demand, draw near to him without boundaries or restrictions. And how do we approach, with this? How do we approach this great God? What do we bring? We approach him with confident, ongoing, persistent prayer. See, prayer is the ultimate expression of our relationship with God. It is a personal God constantly making available his divine aid to assist us. The throne of grace is for us now also a throne of help. There we find mercy and grace. Mercy to cover the sins of yesterday and grace to meet the needs of today. God promises that the help he provides will be timely and sufficient, especially when we suffer and undergo testing. Now, though we may often quibble or quibble with God's definition of timeliness, we might ask, Isn't this help too late? But God promises that his help will never be late because he knows when the time is right. Our privilege is to simply ask and rest in the knowledge that he knows best. But you see, prayer is also the means by which our relationship with God is sustained. It is the medium of communication between us and God. The Gospels are full of occasions where Jesus would retreat to solitude. You know, he would go by himself often in the night, in the dark, to talk to his father. When sleep escapes, you know, David writes, I believe in Psalm uh, 62 or 63, that in the watches of the night, I will meditate upon you. That when sleep has escaped him, when the world is asleep, when his family is away, and there's no one else, he still knows that there is a God in heaven and that he can talk to him. So you see, prayer is more than just a way for us to ask for help. 
Through prayer, we can seek to discern the will of God for our lives. Through prayer, we can simply express our gratitude to God for all his gifts to us, the best of which is his gift of salvation through the Son. Through prayer, we convey our total and utter dependence on God. How sad it is then when we as Christians neglect the practice of prayer. P.T. Forsyth, who was a Scottish theologian, said that prayerlessness is the root of all sin. As, a, as I read in a commentary, when we do not give time each day to earnest and believing prayer, we are saying that we can cope with life without divine aid. It is human arrogance at its worst. Jesus knew that he had to pray and did so gladly, necessarily, and effectively. To be prayerless is to be guilty of the worst form of practical atheism. We are saying that we believe in God, but we can do without him. When we neglect to pray, or if we do it just functionally as a means to an end, reading off a list or just before sleep overcomes us, we lose sight of the tremendous privilege we have through our constant and immediate access to a loving God. We are forsaking one of the key benefits for which Christ died, which is to bring us near to God without restriction or barrier. We are forgetting to nurture our relationship with God, a relationship that we should value above all else in life. It is easy to outsource prayer to a prayer warrior or to a toll-free telephone line, but God does not promise any one person greater access to his throne of grace. We are all equally welcome to approach him and he will hear all of us equally. As we enter the new year, let us, as the writer reminds us, with confidence and boldness, draw near again and again to that throne of grace into the presence of God who welcomes us and Christ who understands us. There, we will find timely help and there we will find the joy of truly knowing God. So where does our confidence lie? Does it rest, does it rest in our possessions, our wealth, our jobs, maybe our relationships with our family and friends? They will all flounder and they will all fail to reward the trust we put in them. If not today, then tomorrow. You know, it's interesting that as we come to the end of the year, we read all of these various news stories. And one of the things that uh, captured my attention was a few weeks ago uh, was this article about Russia. Now, many of you may know that the Russian currency, because of the drop in the price of oil, which is their main export, and also because of sanctions that have been placed on them, because they went into Ukraine, the Russian currency has dramatically dropped in price so that what Russians do now is they go into luxury stores and they buy very expensive watches and perfumes, not because they need them, but because they think that the currency is losing value so quickly that it is better to have the watch and the perfume which you can sell later on. So this is a people who, not less than three months ago, 
were on top of the world, daring the world to come to them because they had conquered Ukraine. And, and we are not too far removed even from our own economic you know, crisis. But we seem to have recovered a little bit. And things looked up. And then there came this little bug called Ebola. And it's quite um, interesting the things that uh, people, especially people in the U.S. did. Um, there was, a, there was a, a school which canceled classes for a week because one of its teachers traveled in the same plane as one of the uh, Ebola patients. There's not the same flight, the same plane. Okay? There was another school which canceled classes because its teacher had gone to attend a conference in Dallas. And Dallas just so happens to be this big city where there was one patient. See, they belong to the nation with the most wealth in the world. They have the ability to send soldiers to any far-off country that they desire. They have the ability to shoot down missiles that come in from the air, from water, from land, through a threefold missile defense system deployed on ships, on land, and on traveling vehicles. And yet a little bug is enough to shake their confidence. Um, last week, Time Magazine came out with its Person of the Year issue. And the Person of the Year for 2015 was jointly awarded to all the doctors who went and treated Ebola in Africa, the majority of which were Christian missionaries. See, what happened in Africa was when the Ebola crisis started, their local infrastructure was inadequate, it crumbled. Their, go- their government was corrupt. The World Health Organization was muddled in bureaucracy. The medical community had no diagnosis, no cure. The only people who would volunteer and go into that place were Christian missionary doctors. And one of those Christian missionary doctors was this uh, doctor called Ken Brandley. And he writes, he got Ebola, treating a mother and child. And he writes, while he was waiting to be transported back, a strange sense of calm came over him because he read that verse which says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And he recovered. And Time Magazine, in giving him and all the other doctors you know, their award for person of the year, said this, that there are some wars, there are some wars that can only be fought with bleach and a prayer. There are some wars that can only be fought with bleach and a prayer. See, even the atheist marvels at the courage of the Christian who finds his strength not in the natural, perishable things of the world, but in the supernatural confidence that can only come from God. 
So where does our confidence lie? Do we put it in the things of this world? They cannot bear the burden that we place on them. Or does our confidence lie in someone who has promised to bear our burdens, not just today or tomorrow, but for all eternity? He is Jesus, the Son of God, and our great High Priest. He is the only one who can truly understand how we feel when we suffer, because he has suffered more than we can imagine. And he's the only one who can provide us sure advice on how to overcome temptation because he overcame them all. And he calls us today to draw near to the very presence of God in heaven, secure in the fact that we will find all the mercy and grace we need when we need it. That is true confidence. Let us pray. Father God, we want to thank you a lot for your word and your, your testimony of yourself a lot, that, that you are steadfast help in times of trouble a lot. And we want to thank you a lot for the Son, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who came onto this earth a lot. And he partook fully of our human condition a lot, so that today he can be our sympathetic high priest a lot. And he's opened up this new and living way to approach you, to draw near to you a lot. And we are so sorry a lot that we have so often neglected talking to you, coming to you with our needs, and most of all, trusting you and placing our confidence in you. And as we approach this new year, Lord, may we be refreshed and renewed with the sense of how awesome you are and how great your grace is, Lord, and approach you continually, persistently to your heavenly throne where we find everything that we need to sustain us in this life and beyond. Help us a lot as we return back to our homes and keep us safe this week. We ask in the beautiful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.